The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, the Cruel Angels Thesis Edition. It's Wednesday, July 17th, 2019. On today's show, Peterloo is a sweeping Mike Lee historical epic. It recounts the events surrounding the Peterloo Massacre, which took place in 1819, but remains to this day a formative experience for British politics, the labor movement, and for all protest movements since it's now streaming on Amazon. And then Neon Genesis Evangelion is an anime TV show from the 1990s. Uh, it's now streaming on Netflix, which is a story in and of itself. But anyway, we puzzle out this weird, wild, boundary-pushing masterpiece with our uh, own producer, Benjamin Frisch. And finally, Mad Magazine, for all intents and purposes, is no more. We will discuss the legacy of an American anti-establishment establishment institution with Slate's own Dan Coyce. Joining me is Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. And Julia Turner, who is the uh, deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. It's August 1819, and tens of, tens of thousands of peaceful demonstrators have gathered in St. Peter's Field in Manchester, England, outside of Manchester, I guess. When yeomanry and cavalry descend upon the crowd to disperse it, they ended up killing at least 16 people. The uh, The body count really varies uh, for political reasons. It tends to be either underestimated or overestimated. You very commonly hear figures between about 14 and 18, many people arguing it's probably higher, um, and injuring hundreds and hundreds of uh, uh, other people as well, including women and children. It was a largely but not exclusively working class crowd gathered to hear speeches and protest, low wages and uh, total disenfranchisement at the ballot box, and corn laws, which were effectively starving uh, the English poor. And though it ended in mayhem and defeat, it sowed the seeds of future protest movements, uh, including the women's movement, but especially the labor movement in England and though in the world over. Uh, the film comes courtesy of writer and director Mike Lee, he of Secrets and Lies fame, also Topsy Turvy and Mr. Turner, which we talked about. Let's, uh, let's listen to a clip. But what good is a parliament if it does not represent its people? Yeah. Yeah. What right does a king have to a payout from the government of two million pounds per annum. A king who has lost his senses, if he ever had it. And what right does our good, gracious, illustrious, or should I say, big fat prince have with one and a half million? He has no right! What right do these men have with this money when those they have robbed are starving for want? They have no right, no right at all! No, sir, they do not have that right! No! But we have a right, we have a right to present a petition to this big fat prince and that we propose to do. This petition will demand at last a fair, proper and full representation for all Englishmen. Dana, let me start with you. Uh, There are so many different ways to talk about this movie. I mean, both as a film in and of itself, but also just as a retelling of a hugely important historical event. Um, let's begin with it as a movie. What do you think of it? Well, for me, the, the late period Mike Lee, the Mike Lee of these past, I don't know, 10 years or so since he has started in addition to the um, the domestic, you know, sort of kitchen sink movies focusing on working class Brits that he's been making for a long, long time now. His first movie, which is called Bleak Moments, was made in 1971. So this is his 48th year of, of making films. And he's been very prolific during that time, but only in his later 
period as he as he turned to these historical, I guess you'd call them epics, but they're nothing like the sort of David Lean style historical epic you might expect. There's something about his historic movies that I find completely fascinating and unique and that is you feel very strongly in this um, this movie Peterloo, which is that they're not costume dramas. They're not period pieces that are trying to evoke grandly the feeling of what the past was like. They're actually even if its scale is quite large, as it is in Peterloo, with many, many dozens of main characters and almost no one real main character, and you know, talking about these huge events like the Napoleonic Wars and the aftermath and this historical massacre, that there's uh, that there's something intimate and precise about them, and that what he's really, really interested in is how people behaved and and interacted in these times, you know, not just how they looked and whether they came out of the costume shop wearing the perfect costume. And we talked about that a lot, I think, with, with Mr. Turner in that it was just a very everyday, quotidian kind of feeling of what it was like to be alive in England at that time. And that, I think, is the strong part of Peterloo. Um, I absolutely loved this movie. I see the criticisms of it and the reasons that it was somewhat more lukewarmly received than uh, than Topsy Turvy and Mr. Turner had been, or a lot of recent Mike Lees have been, in that it's so sprawling. It's almost three hours long. And, uh, and it is a lot of talk, as we heard in that clip, which is a very typical clip. There's lots and lots of, you know, smoky, enclosed, stuffy rooms with people in powdered wigs arguing about ideas. Um, although at the end, also, there is, of course, a huge and horrifying action sequence at the actual massacre at the demonstration itself. And there's really no one main character. There's a family, a working class family in Manchester who is followed throughout as sort of a, a typical example of, you know, the people affected by these corn laws and and this lack of representation. The young son of this family also fought at the Battle of Waterloo, which the movie starts at. And the very first image you see is him wandering with his bugle out of the carnage of, of Waterloo. And, uh, and so we see the aftermath of that battle and how it feeds into the unrest that will lead to this later uprising. And all of that takes a lot of patience and focus and attention from the viewer. So I can see why this movie somewhat sank at the box office. Uh, Although it was well-received by some critics, it was not rapturously received at Venice. And I think it was kind of mistreated by this year's movie calendar and just unceremoniously dumped onto various streaming platforms without any real fanfare at all. And I, I hope that this segment will send people there. I knew nothing, and I think even a lot of Brits grow up knowing very little about this historic massacre at Peterloo. Mike Lee himself is from Manchester, from the Manchester area, and has said that he grew up 15 minutes from the field where this massacre happened and knew very, very little about it until he educated himself as an adult. So I hope that that didn't sound like this is a dry history lesson that everyone must endure. Uh, I actually found it extremely moving and, and beautiful, but it's an unusual kind of historical epic. You know, there's not any Mel Gibson writing to the rescue, and the people that you think are going to be heroes often turn out to be somewhat more morally ambiguous. I am so torn about what I think about this movie, and I think I come down in the pro column. So uh, it is long, and there are so many speeches. And, and of course, nothing is an accident in a Mike Lee film, and the way in which he brings you into the kind of character of life in the early Industrial Revolution, after the Napoleonic Wars, there's kind of an amazing scene in a textile mill where ancient weaving machines are going and they look dangerous and transfixing and modern. And you, you know, I'm not sure. I can't think of a movie that's taken me into an industrial revolution factory like that. That um, That's probably my oversight and not the film industries. But uh, I loved the texture of the film. And I wasn't bored, but it is 
it is slow and methodical, and it takes you from group to group as the groups debate what is the nature of the problem in society at the moment and what is the best thing to do about it. And I think that is what I responded to in it, is this kind of bleak clarity that the debates we're having now about how political change is affected and how you can actually mobilize people to take action and what people do with the schisms between people whose interests are relatively aligned, how they handle them, how they address them, and how they misunderstand each other, and how that can add up into terrible violence. Um, this is a this is a bleak film. I mean, I don't, mm. you don't come away from it feeling like, yay, society's learned so much in the last 200 years. You feel like, oh, well, we didn't invent this. And in fact, should you be peaceful or violent? Should you be radical and speak all the truths? Or should you be strategic and only speak some of them to the people in the hypothetical middle? Uh, the, the it, you know, it's the same, same old, same old, same old, beautifully rendered. And so the, the, the thing that I think works about all the talky-talky is that, is that sense that that sense of being trapped in an endless conversation, I think, is actually the point of the movie. <laughs> like, humankind is trapped in this endless conversation and mm. has been for centuries, probably before the movie began and after us now. Um, and so I think there's a form and function thing working there. But it is, I wish I had seen it in the theater. I mean, it's, I'm in general on the, you know, watch it anywhere side in the film debates because when you think about, like, kids in Oakland watching Ryan Coogler's movie on their phones, like, yes, it, you, you shouldn't have to pay money and go sit in a specific place that might be hard to get to to experience the joy of film. But I wish that I had been, for one thing, the cinematography is so beautiful um, and the world is so specific. And I, I wish I'd been a little bit more trapped. I was like in my home and my son had an mm -hmm. ear infection and my husband went up to take care of it. And I wished I, I wished I had been watching it in a place where I could get a little bit more lost. The canvas is very broad historically, and it does help to see it on the broadest literal canvas screen that you can. Since you mentioned the, the cinematography, I just have to shout out to Dick Pope, who has been Mike Lee's cinematographer forever, and especially on these these big, epic, historic films. He just, again, does something very special. Uh, I saw it read somewhere that in the big climactic mass gathering at the end, that there are no overhead aerial shots, you know, that everything takes place on ground level. I think it was Mike Lee himself who who mentioned that Dick Pope made that choice in, in framing the cinematography. And it makes a huge difference. It makes you realize that I'm not being taken out of the movie by a Hollywood helicopter that's looking at it all from above. I'm seeing it at the actual humble level of the ground that the participants would have seen it. Yeah, I can't remember what phrase, the precise phrase that Great Order Hunt uses when he stands on the hustings and looks at the crowd, but something like a splendid multitude. Uh, I think both at the time and retrospectively, people are amazed at how many people assembled there. Uh, it's estimated to be between 60 and 80,000 people, which in 1819, I mean, it sounds more like, you know, people going to see Queen at Wembley than it does um, an inchoate working class movement assembling itself uh, in one place in one time at the beginning of the 19th century or relatively early in the 19th century. I mean, I think this is a story about, and the Peterloo Massacre has always been about, um, how technology outpaces class consciousness in a way that makes so you know operating politically as a social class quite difficult because capitalism is innovative, technology is progressive, and it moves beyond people's comprehend full comprehension of it and its effects its its effects take effect long before our enlightened conscious selves can understand it and react to it in a humanistic 
uh, or um, socially just way. And I think what's inspiring about the film is the sheer number of people who are coming together, yes, but also the micro story that Lee tells, and that's his method as a, you know, as a filmmaker is quite immersive uh, and, 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 and very ground level, Dana, as you say. And uh, what you see are various people understanding that their suffering is unjust. They're, they're one piece of a mosaic that's going to come together in that field. And, 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 and even though it ends in a horrible defeat, the history of it is that that for the first time, the English working class is really beginning to understand itself as a coherent entity with shared interests. And it, it, no one argues this in a simplistic way, but there is some way in which Peterloo at least fed into the creation of a self-conscious labor movement. Of course, Manchester is where Marx and Engels, Engels, you know, was, I believe, the child of a, of a Manchester uh elite um but it's where class consciousness begins to be, you know begins to form and, and become uh, uh, more realized in order to fight against exactly that julia those machines which had taken work out of the homes and um and and um aggregated in factories and made it way more efficient and all of its benefits flowing away away from the working class anyway enough of that i mean as a movie i love lee's canvas and i love being immersed in his world and he clearly has some idea and i'd love to hear one of you speak to this he has some idea about the relationship of rhetoric to power yes wait let's get to rhetoric and power but wait i just have to say i can't believe that you i mean it's like a case study in what this movie is about you saw this movie and saw it as like oh the industrial revolution ruined life for the working class and i'm like steve what a luddite like actually in the immediate aftermath of the napoleonic wars they're making fine money in the mills and they're trading their eggs in their thing and it's only when the um, the landholders who are resisting the change and cracking down on the changes to the economy uh, put the corn laws in place that the people start to starve. Uh, it's obviously a combination of the two. But like, you know, I, I dispute your political reading of the film <laughs> in a manner that suggests the kinds of political disputes that are at heart in the film. But I think that's such an interesting question about rhetoric and power. I mean, He's not saying it's powerless. He's not saying it's wasted air. I mean, he's almost showing how it kind of crests and builds and people hear things and repeat things and gather the confidence to say more things. There's like an accretive quality to the rhetoric that maybe is part of the point. I'm curious what Dana thinks. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different rhetorics in this movie, just as there are so many different classes. It isn't only it isn't just a simple sort of proletariat versus the the those who own the means of production. Right. I mean, there's the royals and then there's the heads of the army. There's various factions of the elite, which aren't always in agreement with each other about what to do about this uprising. And then there are also various factions of, you know, those who are who are trying to rouse the movement. There is the, the working class people that we see like this essentially starving family of the young bugle who's a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars. But there's also, for example, this middle class. I love the parts that take place in this printing press. There's this uh, Manchester-based printing press where essentially the intellectuals of the town, you know, those who are able to, uh, to, to disseminate information about what's going on with the march and with the corn laws, et cetera, kind of gather together to decide what they can do. Can they pool their small amount of money to get this famous orator in from London, Henry Hunt, who's played by Rory Kinnear really wonderfully in the movie as someone who's incredibly good at whipping up 
the masses with rhetoric, but who is also this sort of self-serving narcissist elitist himself who is not particularly invested in helping the individual people that he meets as much as essentially upping his profile, you know, by making a a, a big public speech. Um, So there's just so many micro categories of of society that, that Lee is interested in stacking on top of each other that I think arguments that some critics have made, I think, that this movie is too ideologically simple and that it's just a sentimental uh, portrait of the working class and, you know, sort of fighting the baddies is is utterly belies the complexity of what we see. Yeah, I like the one, one very quick thing is, is among the many interesting nuances of the movie is that that is that Henry Hunt, who's the sort of central orator that everyone's come to hear uh on the on St. Peter's Field, played by very well by Rory Kinnear, is a he's just a he's sort of a revolting egomaniac, right? He he both is speaking in service of causes that we are meant to believe in completely, and speaking beautifully on their behalf, and he's a preening uh, a narcissist we're meant to dislike personally, and something about like the capacity of the left to break into egomaniacal factions. It just seems to be you know an abiding characteristic of it. All right. Well, the movie is Peterloo, directed by Mike Lee. It's uh, streaming on Amazon. Check it out and uh, tell us what you think of it. Okay, moving on. Before we go any further, let's uh, let's discuss business. I'm sure we have some. Dana? Thanks, Steve. Last week when we did our segment on Joao Gilberto and, and the music of Bossa Nova with Nate Chenin, the great music critic, we promised that we would make you a Spotify playlist of Joao Gilberto and Joao Gilberto adjacent music. And so I spent the week putting that together. I've got a three hour or so long playlist that includes all the songs that we mentioned in the segment, plus lots of other songs selected essentially uh, intuitively by me because I felt like they were great Brazilian music that belonged on the list. Some of them are by Joel Gilberto. Some are about him. Some are music that might have influenced him that came before. And then some of the many, many artists that came after who um, who play either tributes to him or songs inspired by. So that you'll be able to find on our show page. It'll send you to the Spotify list. And one last piece of business having to do with Brazilian music is just that our outro today is going to be uh, me singing a Raul Gilberto song, Desafinado, with my friend David Copenhafer playing a guitar and matchbox, <laughs> the percussion matchbox. So if you stick around after the end of the show, you can actually hear a little bit of bossa nova from me in our slate. Plus segment, we're going to be answering a listener question about what each of us feels is the form of art or cultural expression that we least understand and how we plan on changing that or not in our lives. To hear that segment and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing this show and all your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of those shows and lots of other wonderful benefits. So please go to slate.com slash culture plus if you want to join Slate Plus today. Thanks to the usual slew of IP copyright issues, Neon Genesis Evangelion has been hard to find for about the last 10 years. In fact, almost totally unavailable except on esoteric and super expensive eBay, you know, purchased uh, formats. However, now it's 26 episodes and a concluding feature film, The End of Evangelion, are streaming on Netflix. Now, how to set this up? Okay, in one sense, NGE is a completely typical anime. There's a depopulated post-apocalyptic Earth that's under a renewed assault from giant robots known as angels. Scientists have created a giant cyborg-like 
thing to battle the angels. Those are the uh, so-called uh, Evangelians, but they must be piloted by children. In, and in another sense, it's also completely typical of anime. It's about trauma uh, in a own sort of buried indirect way. It's about the legacy of Hiroshima. It's about being an embodied creature who's filled with sexual longing and shame. And yet somehow this show takes these things, and I say this as someone who actually has watched a fair amount of other anime, it takes these things onto an entirely new realm of Oedipal phantasmagoria. Let's listen to a clip. Father, why did you send for me? We just told you why. So then, I'm supposed to jump inside and fight whatever I saw out there? Correct. No! I don't want to! After all this time, why now? You left me because I was no use to you, right? Anita rose, so I sent for you. But why? Why me? Because this task would be impossible for others. It's impossible for me, too. I've never even heard of this thing until now. And you want me to fight in it? They will explain how. Explain? It's all too much. I cannot pilot this thing! Stop wasting time. Either get in the ever or get out. All right, so we're joined by our producer, uh, Benjamin Frisch. Ben, welcome uh, back to the microphone. Hey. Um. Like most moviegoers, I've watched uh, the Miyazaki films. Um, my daughter went through an anime phase, so in addition to that, I watched Death Note and Attack on Titan. Attack on Titan, I absolutely loved. I actually love both both of those shows. I'm familiar with the anime aesthetic. When I first started watching uh, on your recommendation, um, Neon Genesis Evangelion, I was like, yeah, very familiar. That first episode could have been substituted, swapped out for... I'm Attack on Titan, which came later and is probably influenced by it, but not that unfamiliar. As the show unfolds, it becomes extremely trippy, extremely personal to its creator, uh, really hallucinatory, really intense, and it inspired, I I mean, affection's not the right word, or fandom. I mean, it's inspired a kind of intense fandom um, that is um, almost unique to it in a way. Talk a little bit about the show, your experience of it, and, and why it's so freaking unique. The show was a revolution for me honestly and i think i first encountered evangelion maybe when i was around 15 um or 16 when i was in high school it's it's an incredibly mysterious show the it has this whole world and mythos in some ways i think that's actually kind of a predecessor of a lot of the the big kind of world universes that exist now for me when i was first encountering it totally unprecedented there's a huge amount of christian imagery and mythology jewish mythology um in the series and uh as a sort of you know adolescent from the suburbs that was like i had never seen anything like this before okay so it was a revolution it blew your mind what happened like what did it seem different then what's what was striking about it what was was it the way it looked was it the quality of the characters what were you comparing it to like what else were you consuming at the time that paled in comparison i want the like full-on why did this blow your mind at the time report i mean the whole series is kind of a bait and switch like it, it presents itself as this as a robot anime and you know i think by that point i had seen um you know some of a gundam series one of the very famous anime robot fighting um, series is the Gundam series of which there are many iterations, many of which are, are very different. Um, and those were all f- relatively straightforward. This was a show that 
presents itself as being about giant robots piloted by kids and like sort of this triumphal thing. And then even by the end of the second episode, it's clear that there is like a bait and switch going on, that this is not a show about giant robots fighting. It is a show about trauma and uh, alienation and depression and the way that Shinji, the main character who's sort of forced by his horrible <laughs> his horrible father who abandoned him. Estranged father, yes. right. So that scene that we heard is them talking to each other for the first time in 10 years, right? Yes. And his father is essentially saying, hi, son, please get into this giant mecca now and fight for the world's survival, even yeah. though you don't know how to use it. And it, I think also it, it appealed to me, I think, as a teenager too because it's a it's also a show that's about duty and like you do the hard things that you have to do because you have to do them even though those things might transform you into a monster in order to defeat these monsters we have to become monsters oh can i ask what what did you all what well, what did you think did you like it did you enjoy watching it so I loved it. Um, I loved it because I was shocked to discover I loved anime when I watched it with my daughter when she went through her anime phase. I thought Attack on Titan was one of the best television shows I'd ever seen, bar none. I just thought the level of world building and um, uh, and care and intricacy and character building um, and sheer weirdness uh, were remarkable. I just didn't know what to expect and was taken by it completely. But, but then you you go back to this and it's earlier, it's obviously influential of it. It's more of the same, but even more, even more intense. And as you say, it's really, it is about trauma and it's completely, it's, it's both. I mean, it itself was building on a set of received tropes. Um, and so was both occupying the form. I mean, it was sort of getting inside the genre, the way the kid gets inside the robot right which which the creator hideaki ano is super self-conscious about that metaphor and that self-referentiality i mean he sees this show as something that both made and created him and totally undid him and brought him face to face with his own depression and sense of 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 mortality and um sexual neurosis like it's it's incredible how deeply personal and therapeutic a journey it was for him to make this which is why it begins as a relatively tight and traditional genre piece, but ends as this super personal work of phantas- phantasmagorical art. It just, it breaks all genre boundaries. It moves into different media. It moves outside of animation completely. And it inspired an enormous amount of backlash and, and, and hatred in a way, which he then incorporated again into the creation of the film. And um, I just find the aesthetic wild. I mean, I think that this, this guy's an artist on par with Miyazaki. I mean, he's making something as expressively weird and personal as Miyazaki is. And there you will I will watch a Miyazaki movie and I won't really be able to tell you how its dream landscape is working on me. And that's because it's engaging with something other than my own conscious mind. Um, there is a kind of unconscious or a dream language that anime at its best speaks. And I just think that this is this is a, a comparable to those uh, movies. And it operates on an almost Freudian level, too, both explicitly and implicitly in um, uh, in story terms and the sexual desires of the characters. Very famously, and another thing, this was maybe the first time that I had seen a quasi-gay relationship in animation, certainly, if not on television, period. 
um, part of the reason that there's been a lot of controversy around this um, this release on Netflix is because they redid the translation, the subtitles and the dubbing um, for the Netflix version. And they've changed some of the language in one of the latter episodes, which features Shinji's relationship with a another male character that is coded as gay. And a lot of fans have been really upset that they seem to have kind of lessened or um, lightened some of the language around uh, their relationship. I actually don't really see that much of a problem. I mean, it's still coded as extremely gay. Um, but I, I understand that for this show, like, it's not just a show. It's not just like Stranger Things or whatever. This is a like a funda- fundamental cornerstone of a lot of people in my generation's um, consumption of science fiction. All right. In response to your general question about how we responded to it, I would say that for one thing, I, I'm only about seven episodes into it. I'm watching them in order. And the first thing I begged you when I got here to the studio today is please don't spoil the ending because I definitely want to watch it to the end, especially because I already get the feeling even only less than a third of the way in that things are going to start falling apart on a formal level. And I love when that happens in shows, you know, and that we're going to reach some kind of a different place where, you know, not only are we learning different things about the characters and the world building, et cetera, but that the actual form of the animation is going to begin to kind of shift and dissolve. And that's something we haven't mentioned much about this show is how it looks, but it's it's a very, very striking looking show that's constantly varying the it's visual style. incredible looking. Right? So, I mean, it goes from some pretty sort of realistic in cartoon terms, you know, mecha battles that are sort of recognizable from the kaiju movies that we know to, you know, very spare kind of compositions, particularly when they want to evoke Shinji's depression, the main character uh, and his kind of isolation and alienation in this new world where he suddenly has been forced to sacrifice his life nearly every day inside of these giant machines. These moments when he's by himself where he'll just sort of be sitting in an almost blank room with rain coming down. I mean, there's just a, there's a real mood about the animation that's constantly shifting. And that's really fascinating. I think the thing that most surprised me, I went in knowing that this is, you know, a giant world building sort of legend among anime fans. And I, I had a certain sense of tiredness going in, like, oh, God, there's going to be 50 characters that I have to keep track of. And there's going to be generations of, you know, fantasy beasts that I'm not going to know that who's tell them apart or whatever. I had a little bit of sort of like Tolkien dread or something, you know, that it was going to be that kind of world. <laughs> and uh, and what really struck me is that there's a huge division between the um, the mecha fights and everything that's going on in the more sort of sci-fi side of things, and then just the intimate domestic worlds that these people inhabit. So a huge part of every half-hour episode is just you know home time with Shinji and his who's the who's the crazy woman who sort of adopts him as her oh, foster Misato. woman Misato, right? Who is you know an, a, a scientist who's who's works on these what are they called the Evangelion yeah. machines, and, and she becomes throughout the rest of the show, she becomes a more and more pivotal character and you learn more about her backstory. Yeah, she is a fascinating character too. And the fact that she, who is this kind of, I mean, you could sort of describe her as this, you know, hardcore scientist, party girl, adventurer, very, very different from the extremely withdrawn. Also, yeah, starts off every day with, you know, by slamming several beers from her fridge. The opposite of a kind of maternal figure, but who also makes herself kind of a family for Shinji by taking him in. Anyway, without getting into every one of these individual characters, there are lots of other ones. But the real meat of the show to me was just the relationships and watching how they evolved and having a character that you think, like Misato, you kind of understand, oh, she's the party girl. But then suddenly you get a minute of her interior dialogue and she's actually very unsure of herself. You know, so all of that stuff was just so surprising and complex. I will also say, and this is probably a classic anime 
problem the same way it's a classic hip hop problem. But there's a lot of, quote, fan service in the sense of, you know, there's just like a lot of revealing glimpses of cleavage and, you know, crotch shots of beautiful women. And the series does, to a certain extent, partake in uh, what I've heard described as a kind of like hot girl fascism in pop culture, you know, I mean, even though the female characters are extremely complex and interesting, they are not at all just there to be fantasy objects for the men. They look like fantasy objects and are filmed like fantasy objects at many points. I, yeah, I, I don't have a defense of that other other than to say in, in some cases, I think that especially when it's around Shinji, it's often used to a sort of Freudian end like you're kind of you're seeing what he's seeing yeah Yeah. that and it's like awkward for him but there is I would say a mild leering quality to the camera occasionally mostly in the first third of the series I would say Um, but as you say, that's fairly typical of of anime. And in the case of this show, it would be impossible to say that that feeds into a general demeaning or diminishing of the female characters because it just doesn't. They're still really, really interesting. Yeah, I'm so glad. I mean, as may be clear from this segment, Ben basically like staged a coup and was like, OK, so for topic one this week is Evangelion. And then what else are we doing? And we were like, wait, what is this? What? Uh-huh. Um, and I'm so glad you did. Like, I was delighted to be immersed in this world um, mostly because the texture of it is so uh, multivalent at the risk of saying something that sounds kind of bogus. But like the, the amount of things that are happening in any given scene, there's like it's like a fizzy little carbonated beverage. Like there's so much popping all over the place. Um, you know, there's like a kind of an odd couple sitcom music behind their early roommate scenes. There's like visual j- puns with beer cans. There's like a penguin roommate. There's like a gorgeous Blade Runner scene when the skyscrapers of Tokyo 3 like come out of these pockets in the ground where they live for security purposes. The way in which they communicate to each other, particularly in the battle scenes, feels kind of like campy and melodramatic and B-movie-ish, but um, there's a there's a inter- interestingness underneath. I also had thought that in the opening shot, you see water sparkling and it looks so beautiful and I feel like the last 20 years have been all about like oh CGI it's so hard to get water right oh water is the effect is so tricky that's why they had to make Aquaman late in the Marvel run and I understand that it's not that the underwater scenes are perhaps not what was achieved in Aquaman but um, it's like man that's some good looking water that, that that's like uncanny just the beauty of the illustration so I also was very glad to have been introduced to it I'm not certain that I will proceed and watch all the other ones just for time purposes, but I could imagine like revisiting this at a later time in life. Yeah, this this show was made in 1995, so just before the computer revolution in animation. And it's so, I, I love watching stuff that was made just before that time. There's no CGI that like kind of gets in the way or feels rough or weird or not of the same texture as the show. It all feels very much a piece. Um, before we go, I would just say I would encourage you to finish watching the series. Watch it all the way through, including the last two episodes, which are the very controversial ones. And then you should watch End of Evangelion, which is kind of an alternate ending for the final two episodes and is one of the wildest things that has ever been put to film. It is nuts. 
Can I say one more thing, a piece of watching advice? It's possible on Netflix, of course, to set your settings to all different languages and subtitles. I really think this in Japanese with the subtitles is the best way to watch it. And that's largely because the actor, the voice actor who plays Shinji is extraordinary and uh, and does something that you don't often hear in sort of YA teen adventure type uh, voiceovers, which is that she, it's a woman, Megumi Ogata, who does the voice, really sounds like a child, a vulnerable child, and it makes that character so much more endearing. So watch it in Japanese. Also, I was reading that people were very upset about the closing credits because they didn't yes. use the original song, the karaoke version the, oh, of Fly, Me to, the Fly Me to the Moon that was in the original. But mm-hmm. I have to say that what they replaced it with is really haunting. And every time I watch this show, although you could easily fast forward past the closing credits and get to the next episode, I always watch that haunting uh, fi- those final the music in the, the show Just the beautiful. opening theme one of the greatest opening themes and credit sequences in television history. I should easily. say that our title for today's show the cruel angels thesis is a line of dialogue a, a lyric from that that opening song in the show I love imagining a, a cruel angel writing a thesis <laughs> and what it might be all right well the show is neon genesis evangelion benjamin thanks for coming into the booth as always thank you steve The American humor magazine Mad was founded in the early 50s, that is to say. It was born in the Eisenhower 50s, and it was an attempt to break through everything that was stultifying about that uh, decade, reached a high watermark in influence and subscription rates during the Vietnam War and the Watergate 70s. That's when I read it. Two million other other adolescents were reading it, apparently, at the same time, too. Uh, The goal of Mad Magazine was to create a zone of total irreverence. Its baseline assumption was that the adult world was driven by nothing but lust, finality, and ultimately hypocrisy. Therefore, everything in the adult world was worthy of satire. Uh, It also filled its pages with the works of highly distinctive illustrators. I'll name some of the better known ones. I'm thinking of Don Martin, Mort Drucker, Dave Berg, Dan Coyce, help me out. Sergio Reganis. Yes. In itself, it's a legendary publishing venture up there, I, I would say, with Marvel Comics. I mean, kind of anything. Um, but its influence has been felt, uh, in turn, Saturday Night Live, SCTV, The Simpsons, The Daily Show, and Colbert, on and on and on. But now, however, it is coming effectively to an end. Dan Coyce is uh, publishing a book in September called How to Be a Family, The Year I Dragged My Kids Around the World to Find a New Way to Be Together. Dan, I can't wait to have you on to talk about that book. But in the meantime, uh, let's start on Mad Magazine. A different usual gang of idiots. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dan, I you volunteered to come on this uh, segment, I'm assuming because it's like like me as a kid, you read Mad Magazine. Yeah, well, the snappy answer to that stupid question, Steve, is of course I did. Uh, I was no dummy in the 70s. Um, yeah, I, w- I really wanted to come on to talk about Mad because I think for me and many, many people – particularly of our generation, uh, it was a formative – reading that magazine was a formative experience uh, in a way that a lot of other so-called cultural touchstones actually weren't. Um, and so uh, the the enconia of uh, farewells to Mad Magazine that were all over social media last week were really heartwarming to me because it suggested that this extremely stupid magazine um, that prided itself both on its – its puncturing of stupidity and its own ultimate disposability and stupidity uh, was a touchstone for others the way that it was for me. Right. I read it too. I read it in the 1970s. It helped form my worldview uh, when I was a very early adolescent. Talk a little bit about what it was like to pick up a new issue of Mad Magazine and what you could expect 
issue after issue after issue. It was very heavily, as I recall, a very heavily formatted magazine. It was familiar, as oh, yes. irreverent as it was. Every week you'd get Spy versus Spy, a huge satire of a Hollywood film, um, on and on. Um, yeah, it's, it was, I mean, among the many other things it taught me is it sort of taught me how a magazine works, right? It taught me about the value of, uh, replicable franchises and departments, um, and how if you have the right thing for the back cover, you can just go on forever making the same joke as long as it's a really good joke. Uh, but the experience of picking up Matt, I think was unique maybe among magazines that 2 million you know, number, that circulation number that you cited at the beginning is remarkable, not only for how many people it includes, but for how many people it omits, which is to say everyone like me in, you know, say 1979, who did not purchase MAD uh, because I didn't even have its famously cheap cover price. I would just read it uh, at the spinner rack at Fitzgerald's Pharmacy in Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin. And every week I would go in and I would read it and then I would put it back and I would walk out the door as the pharmacist scowled at me. And I think that that's actually how many people experience that magazine. And so you pick it up and you flip through it and it's incredibly dense with jokes and art. Uh, it's the sort of the predominant art style in Mad was, um, was not actually the sort of like clinical comedic elegance of Don Martin, but really like the Sergio Aragonez, um, or the Antonio Prohias style. He's the guy who did Spy versus Spy, um, of like, of huge amounts of material packed into tiny spaces. And the, the comics would be, we just have like word balloon after word balloon and, you know, a single frame would have multiple jokes within it. And you just got the sense when you opened it up that there was this like bounty of things to be made fun of in the world uh, and that these were the people, uh, the guys, uh, almost entirely guys uh, who were going to be making fun of it for you. From that pop culture parody to the spy versus spy to the snappy answers to stupid questions all the way to the fold in and the back, you would get the sense that like everything that could possibly be of interest to you at that age was in there and was being just ripped apart by these guys who were having the greatest time doing it. Well, something that you've seen a lot in the coverage of the, the eulogies to Mad that I think maybe speaks to why those of us who grew up adjacent to it have such strong memories of it, is that it was probably going to be consumed by children, maybe, like you say, at the spinner rack at the at the corner store. Uh, but it, that it would dealt with, I mean, I just remember all kinds of Watergate parodies. You know, there were constant Nixon caricatures and Spiro Agno jokes and, you know, things that were, were over my head for sure as a kid, but that, that still seemed important and and important to kind of understand and mock even if one didn't know quite what they were and that's just a, a really interesting political education to have to sort of know how to mock something before you even know how to define what it is right it was an era when there it was assumed that there would be things um in the media that would be encountered all the time and maybe even beloved by kids but which would not at all necessarily be pitched to them you know as as different as they often were in tone, I sort of think of Doonesbury in the same way, and that it sat on the comics page. Sometimes it sat uncomfortably on the comics page, but it was put right in front of the faces of America's children for like 25 years, uh, and they couldn't help but soak in a little bit of its irreverence toward serious news in addition to the all the funny things it was doing. 
Julia, you seem you're a little bit younger than us. Do you have any memories of Mad Magazine? I mean, mine are mainly looking through my brother's boxes of Mads. It really was kind of a boy thing, and I didn't get the magazine myself, but he collected it and had enormous boxes of it that I used to kind of rifle through. But do you have any tactile memories of encountering Mad as a kid? Yeah, I do. Even though I'm a slightly different generation, I I don't I cannot remember for the life of me what the vector was. Like whose Mad Magazines did I have? Was it one my, my one friend with the cool older brother? Like I don't think so I don't know where I saw them. It was definitely not my parents' sensibility. Um, and I don't think I was buying them at the store. I remember taking more time with them. But I think I responded to two things. One, totally, Dan, on the magazine craft. Like, just the rhythm of, like, ooh, there's going to be that fun thing where you can fold the front and the back. And there's going to be that mysterious spy thing. And then there's going to be jokes about Hollywood movies that I don't understand. And there's going to be, you know, the, the predictability of it, the expectation of it, the setup of, like, there will be jokes here. Come, there'll be this kind of joke and then that kind of joke. Um, I loved. And then it also just makes me think about all of that aspirational adult reading you do at that time. I mean, yes, Dunesbury, I remember reading, leafing through Mad Magazines, reading Dunesbury, um, reading Vanity Fair as like a kid <laughs> and just like, what? Like making sense of the world, like sort of trying to triangulate off of like what Tina Brown said was important to grownups <laughs> as like your suburban kid understanding of what grown-up life is. Is such a funny way to learn about the world, but of course, it's a way that tons of kids do. Um, and we republished when uh, when the news came down that it that it was shuttering. Um, our TV critic here, Robert Lloyd, had written an essay about how Mad Magazine made him a critic in the late aughts, um, and you know talked about that that experience of kind of having to strain to understand what it was even making fun of, like that refracted view of the world. A lot of it went right over my head, of course, but that's part of what made it attractive and valuable. Things that go over your head can make you raise your head a little higher. Oh, that's so interesting, Julia, because I had come in armed with a, a Roger Ebert quote about his relationship to Matt and how he thought it made him a, a critic, too. Can I read that? Oh, wow. Yeah. This is from an introduction he wrote, actually, for a book called Mad at the Movies. So um, I guess he was kind of framing their their treatment of film parodies over the years. He says, I learned to be a movie critic by reading Mad magazine. Mad's parodies made me aware of the machine inside the skin, of a way a movie might look original on the outside, while inside it was just recycling the same old dumb formulas. I did not read the magazine. I plundered it for clues to the universe. Pauline Kael lost it at the movies. I lost it at Mad Magazine. That's great. And it's just it's a reminder at how smart Mad often was and how righteously cynical it often was, right? It it. It was definitely the first thing I ever read uh, that made clear to me uh, that the corporations of the world cared nothing for me and only for my money uh, and that everyone in charge was only looking out for himself and would screw me over without a second's thought. And, you know, that's a pretty tough message for a five-year-old. But nevertheless, it's not wrong. <laughs> Yeah, the anti-consumerism in Mad was really impressive. And I, it's, it's true, right, that it didn't take advertising for quite a long time. I'm not sure yep. what the year was that it started to take ads. Oh, very but, late, very but the late idea was, history, that, yeah. was that, you know, they couldn't properly parody companies if those companies and those companies' competitors were, were advertising in their pages. So the fact that all of us, um, all we parents, uh, feel as though some measure of our view of the world and our view of humor was shaped by Mad Magazine. And sort of more broadly, the fact that we we now live in an America in which the current generation of parents was essentially raised on Mad Magazine seems to me like maybe the 
the best argument that mad in fact should no longer exist that uh that 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 it can't possibly be doing the work that it once was doing if we the authorities the idiots who are now in charge uh view that worldview as uh the one that we would otherwise be interested in passing on to our children so maybe mad ought to be replaced by something else and i'm curious if you guys have any sense of what it is that is replacing mad right now for the you know nine-year-olds of america well didn't it get replaced a long time ago though i mean what but you know by the time the simpsons was in its third season you know how many people were really turning to mad magazine to deconstruct the workings of the you know dominant narratives of american life i mean it 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 i truthfully will say i was surprised that it was still going and i can't I mean, I'm surprised The Simpsons is still going too. I mean, there's some residual audience that goes back to it for something over and over and over and over again. But I, I wouldn't say that its cultural relevance has been that high for a long time. Is that, that sound about right? Well, because it was no, also that's right. it was also reabsorbed into so many other you yeah. know vectors of snark that we now we now live yes. amongst. I mean, I think the answer to Dan's question has something to do mm-hmm. with the internet, with the cyber. <laughs> but but I'm too old to exactly point to where it would be. Like it seems like whatever is is going to happen to anti-establishment parody is going to be happening online. Listen, the other part of the other problem with the argument is, how do we know that Donald Trump isn't a wasn't a reader of Mad Magazine in the '60s, right? I mean, it's like it's like the idea that this maps cleanly because <laughs> it would it would involve reading. <laughs> but you see my point, right? Like corrosive cynicism, naturally being in the cause of justice, is a very old, you know, way of mapping the quadrants, right? And I, I just, you know, the, the there's a way in which corrosive cynicism about prevailing American institutions now is something the right uses to dissolve liberal institutions that actually are otherwise quite vital and necessary to a healthy democracy. And the problem with a magazine like Mad in 2019 is if it's training you to be corrosively cynical towards all establishment entities, it is going to do some of the dirty work of some very ugly people. Totally, because journalism has been so troubled for the last few decades there are fewer publications that can stay in only one lane. Like, you know, the Corey Sika is the styles editor of the New York Times, right? Like someone who came up as the snark sideways, right? Probably Gawker was the answer for a certain set of people in the early aughts. That version of Gawker was some kind of descendant of Mad Magazine. And now, you know, Corey's running the asylum. Like, so the, the, these tones, these voices have kind of gotten folded into some bigger and more mainstream publications because <laughs> as not, it were, not as everything. it were, <laughs> um, <laughs> if you fold Alfred E. Newman, he turns into Corey Sika, <laughs> um, you know, just because not, you can't, as recent events suggest being even a more relevant standalone comedy magazine. I mean, obviously the onion and more recently click hole are probably two, descendants in a way. Can I end on a cheerier note by singing a song parody that is stuck in my head from Mad Magazine for approximately 40 years? <laughs> Please. <laughs> Please. Absolutely. There's one rule on this podcast, which is if Dana wants to sing, let her. <laughs> <laughs> 
So this was a parody of of Hello Dolly. It's actually very innocuous. It has no political content at all. It's just completely silly. But I still remember the illustrations and how it was laid out on the page and reading it in my brother's room. And the song was Hello Deli. <laughs> and so the first few lines started out, Hello Deli. Well, hello Deli. Could you please send up a nice corned beef on rye? Turkey legs, deli, hard-boiled eggs, deli, some chopped liver and a sliver of your apple pie. (laughs) I could go on. (laughs) But as a little kid, I mean, I was probably reading that at age, I don't know, seven or eight. I mean, I think part of what Mad was to me was just playfulness, playfulness with pop culture songs and tropes that I was familiar with. And, you know, the idea that a song could be recast as a ridiculous song about a deli. And to tell you the truth to this day, whenever I hear about that musical or that song, I think about Hello, Deli rather than Hello, Dolly. Dana, that was perfectly, completely for Schlugener. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, on that note, Dan Quist, thank you for coming back on the show. That That was really fun. My pleasure. Uh, Listeners who are really into Mad Magazine should know that we've hidden a secret message in this segment. And if you fold in the first minute and the final minute together, you'll get a secret lesson from Julia. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Uh, I think I'm going to endorse some Peterloo-related content. Um, When I was researching the movie a little bit for our conversation about the Mike Lee film, I came upon this this great site called 5-Minute History. It's a YouTube channel that has that essentially has actors reading from historical documents about eyewitnesses to historical events. And so they have this quite wonderful actor. He has, I believe, a Mancustrian accent. June Thomas could um, confirm that for us. But he sounds like he's from Manchester, like the characters in the movie. And he's just reading the testimony that was given, I presume, in court afterwards uh, by William Harrison, who was one of the reformers present at the the Peterloo massacre and uh, it's five minutes long and he describes things that we see in the movie. In fact, it makes you realize how much historical research Lee's team must have done because small details like remember the fact that the the podium they're speaking from is is two carts pushed together in the movie. That was a real thing that this guy describes and uh, you know he just describes the flags that were carried in and the sense of pride and then sort of what happened when the cavalry started to ride in and just create all this horrific um, carnage. And uh, it's a really powerful piece of testimony. It's extremely well done. And it made me want to look around more on 5-Minute History to see what other documents they've recorded in that way. So uh, we'll, we'll put a link on the show page, but it's the Peterloo Massacre 5-Minute History. Uh, amazing. Julia, what do you have? Okay, so a little bit of uh, sausage making for our listeners. Last week, after I endorsed the Connie Converse song, My phone line from El Segundo went dead, and Dana and Steve responded in some fashion, but I don't actually know what they said because I was frantically trying to reconnect and get in touch with our producer, Ben. Um, But I gather from some emails we got that maybe you said, oh, is it neo-folk? Or I I don't know, in fact, what you said, but I had that question, too. I played the song later that night for a friend, and he was like, is this old or is this new? Like, what is this? And as I think I expressed in my endorsement last week, uh, endorsing the song Trouble, one of the uncanny joys of the Summer Strut playlist, which I'm just going to talk about till next year, uh, is not knowing the provenance of anything. Like to encounter something totally provenance-free and see if it speaks to you is just a rare cultural experience at this moment. So after I played the song that night for a friend visiting from out of town, we made our bets. He said she was neo-folk. I said, no, I think she's old. Uh, And then we looked up her Wikipedia page, bringing me to my endorsement this week, which is the Wikipedia page 
of Connie Converse and some other selected writings about her. Holy moly, guys. Connie Converse was uh, born in 1924. She was an early singer-songwriter on the folk scene in New York before Bob Dylan. Some call her possibly the first singer-songwriter. That seems mm, probably debatable, but at least somebody thought it was worth arguing about. Um, Then she had trouble making her career work. Uh, She was struggling just as Dylan arrived in town and met with massive success. So she moved to Michigan, where she went into academia and began uh, working as the managing editor for the Journal of Conflict Resolution. And then, at the age of 50, in 1974, she disappeared and told her family she wanted to go make a new life for herself and that they should not find her, and no one knows what happened. Whoa! That's incredible. I know! (laughs) (laughs) For one thing, I would never have placed her in that generation from from what she sounded like. She sounded like maybe a boomer era. I think the Roaches were who I compared her to in that period when you were cut off and Steve and I were discussing the music clip. Also, I believe that Carl Wilson wrote us saying, thank you for helping me discover Connie Converse, right? He had never heard of her before. And I think that the segment... Yeah, how often... How often do you get to tell Carl Wilson about an artist he's never heard of who may or may not be the first singer-songwriter? I now want whoever nominated the song to uh, to come and, and, and sh- show their head and raise their hand and, and to thank them. Um, she was the valedictorian at Concord High School. She grew up in New Hampshire. Um, she worked at a printing house during her time in New York. She was on TV once in the 50s. Uh, and then I think the wonderful David Garland, who's a, um, a DJ in New York and just has a, a wonderful taste in music, um, helped her rediscovery in the early aughts. And there was a re-release um, of her collected works, which were, I think, had never been published as a record. I think they were like in a file cabinet somewhere in Michigan. And somehow they came together. An album came out in 2009. And then a vinyl pressing came out, I think, in 2015. And there have been a few other pieces about her, but just like, holy moly, go down the Connie Converse rabbit hole. Where is the, I want like a Kelly Reichardt movie about Connie Converse. <laughs> and um, yeah, Connie Converse, once again, my endorsement. My endorsement is first listening to her and then second endorsement, learning about Connie Converse. Well, can then, in that case, can I add a corollary that I just learned while Googling her while you were talking? Because you mentioned David Garland, who's a friend of mine, a previous guest on the show, and just a, a legendary DJ and, and sort of music educator, I would say, um, has or had for many years this show called Spinning on Air on WNYC, where he would play new music by, you know, often unusual and undersung musicians. And uh, I'm just seeing that there is a whole spinning on air just about Connie Converse, which you can still listen to on WNYC. I'm assuming it's a show that aired years ago, but that should be one of the places listeners go down their rabbit hole. Listen to David Garland's interview and concert with Connie Converse on spinning on air. Apropos of the Peterloo uh, conversation, I'm endorsing, and I'm sure this is not the first time on the show, but it's probably been at least 10 years, one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, It's called The Making of the English Working Class by the British historian E.P. Thompson. It was a completely foundational text, both in historiography of the working class and and, uh, British history, but also in my own reading. Um, I I, uh, love to read a short passage from the, I think it's from the introduction, in which, uh, and I should say that the book towards the end talks 
at length about the Peterloo Massacre and its significance. Um, but what's interesting is that the Peterloo Massacre comes at the end of a fairly long history of working class displacement uh, at the hands of technology. I'm seeking, he writes in the introduction, to rescue the poor stockinger, the Luddite cropper, the obsolete handloom weaver, the utopian artisan, and even the deluded follower of Joanna Southcott from the enormous condescension of posterity. Their crafts and traditions may have been dying. Their hostility to the new industrialism may have been backward looking. Their communitarian ideals may have been fantasies. Their insurrectionary conspiracies may have been foolhardy, but they lived through these times of acute social disturbance and we did not. Their aspirations were valid in terms of their own experience. And if they were casualties of history, they remained condemned in their own lives as casualties. Um, And I think Thompson's goal is pretty much announced outright there, which is to rescue these people from the condescension of history and 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 not tell history from the point of view of the, of the winners. I mean, one of the things that the Peterloo movie reminds you is that history hinges on the tiniest, tiniest of contingencies. It could really go a different way at any given moment. I mean, there was a moment when, in fact, that, that might not have been a massacre, right? And you just don't know counterfactually what happens next. But, you know, the idea that just because people in their own lives hundreds of years ago, don't find their aspirations validated in the way history turned out now, doesn't make them available to be victims all over again of our arrogance and the arrogance of the present tense. And so I regard this book as an immense act of a moral and imaginative sympathy in addition to being an incredible uh, effort of archival um, research. So it is highly recommended, The Making of the English Working Class, by E.P. E. Thompson. All righty. Thank you, Julia. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve, as always. Si você que eu desafio You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or interact with us on Twitter. It's our Twitter pages at slatecultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Se você insiste em classificar Meu comportamento diante musical Eu mesmo mentindo devo argumentar Isto é bossa nova, isto é muito natural. O que você não Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, first of all, I was not dunking on short stories because I do not understand them. That's actually an art form that I think I do understand. There are many, 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 many that I don't.